Hello, I'm Gaylord Perry. Played uh, baseball 22 years in the big leagues, had some great fun. But one of the funnest stories I had was the man on the moon story. 1964 in Pittsburgh, the old ballpark, I was hitting the ball out in the ballpark and Harry Jupiter, a San Francisco sports writer, afternoon paper, told Alvin Dark, I manager, this Perry kid's going to hit some home runs for you. Alvin says a few adjectives with that said that it'd be a man on the moon before he does that. So five years later, I'm on the mound in, in Candlestick Park in San Francisco, pitching against the Dodgers, and we have a moment of silence. The man had landed on the moon. Bottom of that inning, I hit my first home run. How about that, folks? Welcome to Jays From Home. My name is Matt Gower. My regular co-host Steve is away this week. Uh, off the top of the show, we heard uh, Hall of Famer Gaylord Perry tell his story about the moonshot. He passed away earlier this week, so that was sad to hear. Um, among uh, many teams that he played for, he was a star for the uh, San Francisco Giants. Uh, and speaking of the Giants, we have a great guest today. Uh, we've got John Shea on the show. He wrote uh, a book called, uh, tw- he co-authored a book with Willie Mays called 24 Life Story and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. And he also appears on the uh, HBO documentary Say Hey Willie Mays. So we, ha- we had a really great talk about all things Willie Mays, and we'll uh, get to that pretty shortly because uh, I, I, it's it's it was a really important conversation too because um, Willie Mays isn't necessarily a guy who's who's in everybody's uh, consciousness right now with all the all the the hot stove news going on. So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna listen to that <clears throat> interview right off the bat, and then we'll come back and talk about some baseball stuff. So here is my interview with John Shea. All right, I'm here with John Shea. John, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, man. Yeah. Um. So you have uh you've written a a, a, a lot of books. You you write for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um. You appeared recently in the HBO documentary. Um, say hey, Willie Mays. Um, and that actually, I was watching that. Uh, I guess it was a, came out a couple weeks ago, and and that inspired me to pick up uh, your your book about Willie Mays. And and the thing about uh, your book specifically, um, I read a lot of baseball biographies, and um, the fact that you had Willie's voice uh, his in this book, I think, was kind of the deal breaker for me because I've never re- read any uh, books biographies about Willie before. So so the fact that he was part of this project. Uh, was was really the reason why I started to read it. So, thanks so much for for, for putting in the, all, all the work. Well, that's amazing to hear. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, now, my my question about Willie Mays right off the bat is how difficult what was it to kind of gain access uh, with Willie to, to to write this book? Yeah, Willie, for good reasons, maybe doesn't trust everybody who comes into is his area mm-hmm. if i might say um he grew up in an era where shoot it was it was the great depression it was it was the jim crow south uh, he he went from the negro leagues and then the next minute he's in an all-white league after the giants signed him in 1950 the only minority in the entire league the giants sent him to the new jersey giants and it was an all-white league at the time, and it was rough for him. And uh, He eventually got into the big leagues, but he played his entire career before free agents. He never had an agent. He never had uh, representation like all the ballplayers do now, advising him. Uh, he was pretty much at the mercy of ownership that determined how much he made, and the most he ever made was 165000 So for good reason, trust was always a big thing for him. You know, can I trust him? Can I trust him? Well, he came back to the Giants in 1986, and I started covering the team in 1988, and he was always around as an employee of the club, and he took that to heart. He would always be in the clubhouse. He would always be accessible to players and coaches and managers and media. So when I was in the clubhouse and he was in the clubhouse and he was holding court, of course, I was going to be part of it, and as the eventual 
national baseball writer of the San Francisco Chronicle. I wrote a lot about him and who wouldn't. And I think I gained his trust because he kept talking to me. So I must have got something right along the way for him to keep being available to me. And shoot, back in, I guess it was 2005, I asked him about a book project. And he said, I'd like to see this in classrooms. And that was a hint that, hey, let's make this inspirational to, to everybody, not just young adults, but all ages. And from there, we spent a lot of time on it, off and on, year to year, but not until about 2018 did it reach fruition. And by then, I had written quite a bit about it anyway for the purpose of the book. And it came out in 2020, um, shortly after his birthday, May 6th. And it was uh, right away on the New York Times bestseller list. So how cool is that? I mean, I guess the advice for uh, uh, any young writer is make sure Willie Mays is your co-author, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. He, yeah, he's he he will definitely uh, give your uh, work instant uh, instant audience. Um, um, now you mentioned that he wanted it to be in the classrooms, right? In the classrooms. How was it received by uh, students who may not necessarily have known or appreciated uh, Willie's contributions to baseball and, and and society even as a whole? Well, I keep getting emails from people saying, I read it, I'd like to share it with my child when he or she is old enough to to read something like this. Um, it is basically a, a book that a kid could do a book report on because it's, shoot, it's G-rated, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a lot about family, it's a lot about culture, it's a lot about race, it's a, it's a lot about overcoming the odds, it's a lot about uh, persevering and not letting the bigots win because he came up three years after Jackie Robinson signed by the Giants in 50 and Jackie came up in 47. So Willie was hearing a lot of the same things Jackie was. And at one time he actually looked at me when we were uh, in dialogue for the purpose of the book and said, I, I wondered if it was worth it. And this is back when he was in Trenton, New Jersey, in that all-white league as the only minority and he, he had had enough, it seemed. He was ready to go back to Birmingham and um, work in the mills like his dad or go back and play with the Black Barons again or have odd jobs, do whatever. All he had was a high school education. But luckily for everybody on the planet, really, he uh, wouldn't, um, like I said, let the bigots win. And... Uh, he, he moved on from that and became the iconic American hero on and off the field that we all know today. Definitely. Um, and you mentioned before that uh, he had a, that presence in the clubhouse. Um, and, and he's really like mentored generations of, of, of baseball players over over years and years, uh, you know, barring that 10 year absence uh, when he was when he wasn't uh, when he was, I guess, technically banned. But um, what how has his mentorship um, evolved and adapted as baseball at the sport has changed over the years? Yeah, Bowie Kuhn was the. Uh the wise old commissioner who banned <laughs> not only Willie Mays, but Mickey Mantle from mm -hmm. the association with casinos. I mean, they had no pension. Uh, they weren't working for teams, making enough money to survive, really. And so these casinos asked Mickey and Willie, hey, you know, sign autographs, play golf with our clients, uh, kind of just hang out, do some charity work. So Bowie uh, suspended them both and Luckily, Peter Uberoff came along, the next commissioner, after he put together the 84 Olympics in L.A., he became the commissioner in 85. And his first act was bringing those two guys back into the fold. Uh, No-brainer, right? PR mm -hmm. uh, move uh, of the century, really easy. You know, all three of them were on Sports Illustrated cover. You know, we're back. And uh, anyway, so the, the, the inspiration is generation... Uh, from one to the other. And the perfect example is the Bonds family, which is a chapter in the book and also highlighted in the documentary, Say Hey Willie Mays, because when Bobby Bonds came up to the Giants, and Bobby was this five-tool, magnificent overall ball player who could really do it all. He could throw better than 
Barry, his son. He could uh, run the bases uh, better than Barry, his son. He was he was phenomenal uh, on all phases. Uh, he had some demons, though. He drank heavily and went from team to team to team to team the second half of his career. But as a giant, uh, Bobby really looked up to Willie, and Willie took him under his wing because Willie saw the pressure Bobby was feeling as the so-called next Willie Mays, a, a title that nobody should have because it's just unattainable. So um, Willie really looked out for Bobby and became a really good friend. They had they were locker mates. But anyway, this young five-year-old Barry Bonds was always in Willie's locker, and a big pest, and always follow him, him out to the field and trying the basket catch, even though uh, Barry threw left-handed. He would borrow Willie's glove and try to do the same, put it on the wrong hand. And Anyway... Over time, uh, Willie took a liking to young Barry and then advised him actually out of high school because the Giants had drafted him pretty high out of high school. And Willie told Barry, he said, you know, don't sign, go to go to college. So Barry went to Arizona State, got drafted with the Pirates, became a free agent, signed with the Giants. And again, um, you know, Willie kind of, advised Barry and then owner Peter McGowan, uh, you know, to make that marriage happen. Bonds returning to the Bay Area as a giant. And then he spent his whole career, the rest of it in San Francisco. And Willie was always around, available to help with Barry, especially during the whole steroid situation in Balco. And, uh, Willie was always at his locker kind of just saying, hey, you know, be cool, you know, forget about it, just play the game, live your life. And uh, when Bobby Bonds died in the early 2000s, uh, uh, you know, Willie visited Bobby at his deathbed and, and Bobby asked him, say, hey, do me a favor, take care of Barry, because you're the only one who uh, really gets to him and he listens to, you know, except for me. So uh, Willie said, absolutely. And you know, vowed to do it and did do it, and you know, is still doing it. So anyway, there's there's a lot of stories that uh, involving Willie and inspiring people. And I spoke with so many younger African American players by you know five or ten or fifteen years. You know, Maury Wills and Reggie Jackson, and even Hank Aaron, who was three years younger, and Frank Robinson. These guys more in Willie's age group, but a lot of others. You know, Willie McCovey and. Cepeda and Alou, these guys who were several years younger, and all of them talked about how Willie was influential you know, during the 60s, during the civil rights movement that, that I didn't know about earlier. And that really uh, was a story that wasn't told. And I got heavy into that in the book, and the documentary uh, spells it out as well. Yeah, and, and even at the start of the, his career, when he moved to to San Francisco, he taking a stand just for 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 wanting to buy the house and stay in the house that he was living in was 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 his his first really public um, stand that people saw his kind of his 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 fortitude. Um, a little a, a little a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, uh, Mickey Mantle, um, and one thing near the end of the book, um, I don't think you went into huge detail on it, but I wonder if you can maybe expand on it a little bit, is that uh, you mentioned that he and Mickey Mantle um, basically started the Players Union with um, uh, by approaching Marvin Miller to st set up that uh, pension fund. You know, that was that came from an interview with <clears throat> Scott Boris. And oh, Scott that's right. Boris is, is this major agent who, you look at the free agency today, he's got every other player. It's really amazing how mm -hmm. he's kind of dominated his field. And he just seems to have every free agent except for Aaron Judge. <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, I, I had to quote him for the book because he grew up not far from Candlestick Park, up in the Sacramento area. And he would go to Giants games as a kid. And, uh, he actually played a little minor league ball. And a scout brought him into the clubhouse one day and introduced him to Willie and McCovey and Marshall and all these guys who were around. And then he became, you know, the Scott Boris we all know. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, what would Willie Mays be worth today? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, given the fact that he had the five tools and nobody else in the history of the game, except for maybe Mantle, 
Maybe Mike Trout in his early years. Trout doesn't run so much anymore. But and he and he certainly doesn't play. He's not as durable as Willie was. Um, nobody, nobody in the history of the game, except for those, had the five tools at the highest level. In other words, maybe maybe one tool wasn't you know better than the other because that was also a ten out of ten. You know, his running, his fielding, his throwing, his hitting, his hitting for power. Those five tools really set him apart because he could do every one better than everybody else or as good as the best hitter or the best baseman. But nobody combined them like Willie Mays. So for that reason and for reasons that would generate revenue at the gate and with T-shirts and caps and any memento that people would get their hands on regarding Willie Mays, Scott Boris said, oh, yeah, he could get between 50 and $55 million a year today. And this was an interview <laughs> from a couple of years ago when people weren't in the $40 million neighborhood like they are now. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, so that, that, that's, that, that says a lot about, about him. But Scott Boris also talked about the early stages of, of the union when Marvin Miller was trying to get things going. And shortly before Marvin's death, Scott flew to his hometown and hung out with him a couple of days. And that's when Scott said that Marvin told him, you know, how meaningful Willie Mays was at the, at the, you know, with the genesis of the players union and how, because of Willie Mays's name, uh, if he was on board, then making all that money and maybe not even needing a union because he was making a lot more than everybody else anyway, that if he was aboard, then the guy making ten thousand or fifteen thousand better be aboard. So, so there were some nice examples in the book about that. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the the you know we hear a lot about other people who were free agents or who tested the market. You know, Messer Smith and Kurt Flood and all these guys from back in that era in the early to mid '70s. But by then, Willie had stopped playing the game and by the time the union really reached fruition, Willie had been retired. So he didn't benefit, but he certainly was involved early on. Well, you can say that baseball benefited from Willie in many different ways, including that way. Um, and you and again, it, back to Mays and Mantle, have there ever been uh, two superstars who so who are yet so alike yet destined for different fates than Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle? Oh my gosh, it's it, it wasn't that something 1951. They're both 20-year-old rookies. They're both center fielders. And they were both in New York, one at the Polo Grounds and one at Yankee Stadium. And they were similar in that they had the five-tool prowess. And everyone said, well, who's better, Willie, Mickey, or the Duke, including the Brooklyn Dodgers' Duke Snyder. And Duke was probably a distant third, with all respect to Duke, who's more of a hitter than a defender, fielder, runner. Um, and for four years, nobody, you know, hit better than Duke, because if you look at those four years in Brooklyn, when Willie and Mickey were also playing, uh, there was good reason in the boroughs of New York to have this great debate, Willie, Mickey, or the Duke. But at the end, um, both both Mickey and the Duke uh, agreed that Willie was the best. Uh, they they even said so at a function in New York that's highlighted in the book, uh, the tear-jerking moment in which they both concluded, yeah, Willie, you were the best, and, you know, it brought down the house, and um, I think I think um, there was mutual respect. Nobody said, I'm the best, like Joe DiMaggio always used to say. He would not be introduced anywhere unless now the greatest living ball player, Joe DiMaggio. I mean, he would not appear unless he was introduced that way. Right, which right. Says, says a lot about Joe DiMaggio because, you know, I don't, I don't think ever he was the greatest living ball player. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> because uh, Willie and Mickey and some other, Hank Aaron and other guys were around when, mm -hmm. you know, Clemente, when he was living. So uh, that was just DiMaggio. But Mays would never say it. You know, he would, he would let you say it. But he would never say he was the greatest. But there was a bond between Mickey and Willie. And they even communicated over the years, you know, how much you make. And, okay, good, I'm going to bring that by 
my owner, I'm going to make a dollar more. You know, they, they used to make commercials. They used to laugh. And in the eighties, they got even closer because of card shows. You know, they were making money that they never dreamed of because mm -hmm. people would pay for their autograph and which was good because again, there wasn't much of a pension that they benefited from. So this was their pension. Right. Um, um, and I think you made a pretty convincing argument that Willie is the is the better player amongst uh, uh, Mickey and the Duke and of, of all other players. Um, now, uh, one thing that you did get into is um, uh, his MVP awards. I think he only had, uh, is it twice, I think? Um, yeah. Do you, th do you think yeah, that reporters... Why, why did why didn't reporters give him more MVPs? Was it like a uh, lack of education, MVP fatigue? With, with that happens with like say Mike Mike Trout. But why would you what would you say? Yeah, no, that you're right. I mean, maybe Michael Jordan didn't win it every year because voters wanted. Who, okay, who, let, let's get a trendy pick in here. And a trendy pick in 1962 was Maury Wills. Mm -hmm. Even though Willie had just an incredible <laughs> season, you look it up. And by the way. If, People are into war, W-A-R, wins above replacement, which is a stat that a lot of teams use now, a lot of uh, sabermetricians use now to value a player's entirety. In other words, defense, base running, and hitting, not just home runs, RBIs, and such. And you look at Willie just led the league in war every year i mean 10 times overall in the national league and seven entire entirely in, in, in the majors so i mean if you look at the war leaders now oftentimes the leader in war is your mvp you know uh mm -hmm. that's just how it works because he was the most valued he did it all he did he helped this team more than any other i mean a lot of teams a lot of voters will look at uh, a candidate who whose team made the playoffs. But anyway, in 1962, the Giants made the world, they played the World Series, they won the pennant, and it was all about Mays. Mays had an incredible year. But Maury Wills, whose Dodgers finished second, won the MVP because he was the first player in history who stole 100 bags. So Maury Wills was the MVP at 62. I mean, it was ridiculous that he won it, but he was the trendy pick. So Willie won the award in 1954 after he came out of the military the year he made that catch against Cleveland in the World Series Vic Wirtz and not again till 1965 but if you look at those 13 seasons it, it's just like the, the most amazing 13 year span in baseball history he played 150 plus games each one of those seasons and nobody who ever played Major League Baseball did that nobody ever played 13 straight seasons with 150-plus games. Not Lou Gehrig, not Cal Ripken Jr., but Willie Mays is the only one who's ever done that. Most of that streak came during the 154-game season. So he played every day, and he was good every day. Not maybe, maybe he went over 4, but he always ran down the balls in the gap. And his base running was expertise, Jackie Robinson-like. Uh, you know, nobody had better outfield arm. Nobody could chase down balls anywhere in the outfield so he th there are people today who are uh, driven and tell me that looking at the numbers he could have won eight or more <laughs> but back then people said well okay who whose team won and who was the best player on that team and the giants only went went to the postseason once in the 60s even though they had the best record in the 60s and Juan Marichal had the most wins in the 60s and Willie Mays was the player of the decade in the 60s, they finished second every year. I mean, it was it was awesome competition. <laughs> if you look at some of these teams, there weren't many of them, but every team, I mean, even the lowly Chicago Cubs had several uh, Hall of Famers. So uh, there was no easy task and the pitching was dynamic and and uh, the Giants would win 95 to 97 games and finish second. There was no wild card. So they didn't make the postseason. You had to win the uh, win your league, and that's the only way you could advance. And the only playoff round was the World Series. Then. So they finished second a lot, a couple games here, a couple games there. And the next thing you know, they're in second place. And only in 62, when they had that seven-game loss to the Yankees, did they, did they make uh, the World Series. So, yeah, it's... Uh, 
he he probably got cheated out of any MVPs, but he never complained or moaned about it. And he just kind of looked ahead to the next year. You never you never saw Willie crying about stuff. But that, that that's what kind of sets him apart. I mean, an American hero. You look at Mickey Mantle. He kind of drank himself out of the game, and Willie kind of never did that. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He never. You know, charged the bound or got ejected from a game. I mean, it's just 22 years. It's a spotless record. It's just unheard of. And that goes for off the field as well. There's no police blotter and there's there's no controversy that that uh, chased him down like a lot of ball players who who, who were great. Um, and uh, uh, you know, he's he's still he's still in that world today, inspiring people by taking the right path. Because believe me, there were many times in his life and his career, he could have gone down the wrong road and he never did. For sure. Um, what do you think kept the giants from, from winning? Uh, was it just the competition? Cause they, they over, over his career, the, the giants only won three pennants in that, in the, the, the single world series in 1954. Yeah. Um, I would say he won five pennants because you got to count the Birmingham Black Barons in 1948, and then the 51 Giants, the 54 Giants, and then in San Francisco, the 62 Giants, and then with the Mets, the 73 Mets. So, right, right. Um, yeah, it was only the 54 New York Giants that won, and he made such a, an amazing catch and momentum changer in that series in game one, the eighth inning, that you know the MVP of the World Series, the award now is the you know, World Series uh, Willie Mays World Series MVP award with uh, you know an amazing sculpture of Willie making that catch as part of the trophy. But uh, you know they had a lot of Hall of Famers. They had Marichal and Perry, who we lost the other day, Gaylord um, mm-hmm. at '84, uh, and Cepeda and. McCovey and Mays, you know, Mays, the best of all. They also had the Alou brothers and uh, Jim Ray Hart and, um, you know, all kinds of wonderful ballplayers. But the league was really strong back then. And the Giants never had these, like, like Hall of Fame manager, a guy who would just turn the team around and say, okay, let's, let's, from the year 1954 until the year, Willie retired. The Dodgers had one, Walter Alston. They had one manager. The Giants had about 10. They came hmm. and went, usually friends of the owner, Horace Stoneham. So it, it, it was difficult um, to get any kind of rhythm because managers were coming and going. Alvin Dark was the one guy who lasted for a while. And then even he was divisive because in 1964, he wouldn't let the Latino players speak Spanish in the clubhouse or the right. dugout. It was ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. noted in the book. It's noted in the documentary. But imagine Felipe Alou couldn't speak Spanish with either of his two brothers, Jesus <laughs> or Matty. I mean, it's ridiculous. And um, that was the manager who brought him to the 62 World Series. So th- there was a lot of friction on those teams. And it was mm-hmm. always Willie Mays who became the uniter and the, the, the peacemaker and the guy who would bring Felipe or bring Orlando or these other players aside instead instead of a mutiny, he basically said, fellas, you know, play for yourself, play for me, play for your team, don't play for him. And sure enough, after that 64 season, he was fired, Alvin Dark. Well, a great story, which isn't maybe covered in the documentary, but is in the book is, you know, in the end, Alvin Dark admitted his flaws, admitted his mistakes, and there was an old timers function Giants-Dodgers, all the players from 62, all the coaches got together, and they were in a hotel lobby before this function, and Alvin Dark went around the room and apologized to Orlando, apologized to Jose Pagan, apologized to all these people that he offended, uh, you know, while they were wearing a uniform in San Francisco, and and they, they were forgiven. Felipe Alou told me, Orlando Cepeda told me, you know, we, we forgive him, we forgave him, and um, it's kind of a beautiful story in the end, but it was a rotten story when when it was all coming down. Right, right. No, that that makes a lot of sense now that the, the how you laid that out. Um, now you mentioned the catch in the '54 World Series. You can't have an interview about Willie Mays without talking about the catch. <laughs> but I, ha- I have a specific question, not not maybe not necessarily about the catch, but one thing that uh, Willie mentioned um, in the book is that um, he valued his defensive 
skills over offense. Can you tell me why he felt that was more important to his gameplay? Well, he he could help you win a game defensively every day. He could have four at-bats and hit 110-mile-per-hour screamers at the shortstop, at the center fielder, at the first baseman, at the left fielder, and go for four. But defensively, he could be a presence every single day. And when I asked him about the five tools, I said, what tool are you most proud of? And I'm thinking, here's a guy who hit 660 home runs. He had 3,000 hits. He had 335 steals in an era where they didn't run much. And they shut down the running game if they were up like three or four to nothing. You know? And also, he didn't run much because McCovey was on deck. He didn't want to leave first base open. They, he didn't want McCovey walked. So he often just stayed at first instead of taking second. So I said, Willie, what's the most proud tool of yours? And right away, he said, defense. I said, oh, with all that, with all that offensive and base running glory, it's defense? He said, yeah, exactly what I said. You know, I can win a game every day playing defense. That's what he took pride in. And that's why he was a Birmingham Black Baron as a sophomore in high school, as a 17-year-old kid playing with these grown men, these legends, these wonderful ballplayers of the Black Barons, because he could chase down a ball in center field. And if he got on base, he could run better than anybody else. He became a hitter. He was always a great defender, always a great runner, but he became a hitter. He learned how to hit a curve. He learned how to be patient, to play well. He wasn't patient like Mickey Mantle, though. You know, both those guys had the same exact slugging percentage in their career, but Mickey has a higher on base percentage because he walked more. Willie wanted to swing at the first pitch, no matter where it was. He, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, he was just more aggressive at the plate than, than Mickey in that regard. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing um, regarding the tools and that catch itself kind of epitomized Willie Mays in the 1954 season. And, and nowhere else in any baseball field could he have made that catch because at the polo grounds it was 483 to center field, 483. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, was, it was like a, it's like a horseshoe. So left field and right field, they were they were close, and then the the, the wall jetted out the deep center field, and you know it was Mays who was shallow on the uh, ball of uh, Vic Wirtz because they were runner on second and Willie didn't want him to score. There was a tie game, so he was playing shadow. And Don Little, the little left-hander, was a curveball specialist, so he was thinking, well, if there's a ball hit, it's going to be on the ground up the middle and I'm going to be able to throw out the runner at home. So Vic Wirtz gets a pitch that he could drive and he certainly drove it 450 feet or whatever it was you know in the parking lot in most ballparks today and uh willie chased it down and he says it wasn't the catch that was more impressive in his mind it was the throw because he kept the base runners from scoring and that play instead of a inside the park three-run homer or two-run triple became an out and the Score remained tied, and uh, Giants won the game in extra innings and then went on to sweep, and Cleveland was heavily favored to sweep, and it was the Giants who actually swept, uh, and it all started the momentum created with the Willie Mays catch. Right, for sure. Um, now, uh, you, in the book, you, you compare uh, Willie to, to, to Mike Trout a lot, but I, I want to throw something out at you and, and see what you think about this. Cause, well, um, I... I, the, I, I, I I, I, I might have compared the early Mike Trout. Right, right. Mays. I didn't compare Mays to Trout. I wouldn't sure, go sure, that sure. far. Yeah, <laughs> it no, was the I, other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because because no other ball player, you know, last couple of years, like I said, he didn't run as much. And he's a center fielder, but he's not a gold glove winner like Willie year after year after year after year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he's the he's the closest. The closest, yeah. Um, and <laughs> well, okay. Well, I, I want to go, go a kind of different way because um, Leo DeRocha kind of told him um, early on in his career to, to hit less home runs. Uh, but there's another player who I think you're pretty familiar with, um, um, whose approach kind of is almost an extreme version of not hitting home runs. But I wonder, uh, Ricky Henderson is a guy who I kind of I read his, his Howard Bryant's biography on him uh, recently, and and. There was a lot of similarities between Ricky and, and Mike Trout. I wonder if if Ricky is almost a, a more apt 
comparison to uh, Willie Mays um, minus the home runs. Yeah, wonderful book by by Howard, uh, the Ricky book that just came out. In fact, mm-hmm. I did a book myself with Ricky in the early 90s called right. Off Base Confessions of the Thief. And it was an autobiography, uh, all in Ricky's words. And I was thinking, well, that is going to be a great book because he's almost close to retirement. He was in his <laughs> 30s, and little did I know that was only the midway point of his career. He played till his <laughs> mid-40s. <laughs> so uh, so I'm glad Howard wrote this book because it covers his entire life, his entire career. But you're right. Um, Ricky could do everything. I mean, he didn't have the arm. Willie did, so he didn't play center. He played left. But the quickness that he uh, threw the ball and often chased balls down in the corner in the left field and one hopped his throw to second, he nailed a bunch of people trying to turn a single into a double. Um, Obviously, he stole more bases than anybody else in history, uh, scored more runs, uh, drew more walks than everybody except Barry Bonds, but Barry is there because of the intentional walks. Uh, Mm -hmm. Ricky got him the old-fashioned way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, he he worked the count. And, yeah, you're you're right. there are a lot of similarities in Ricky Henderson wore number 24 yep. because of Willie Mays. He grew up in the Bay Area. He grew up in Oakland uh, watching Willie from across the Bay. And um, he went to some little camp as a kid and there was Willie and he just idolized the man because he could do it all. And that's what Ricky wanted to do. He wanted to do it all. I mean, he didn't hit 50 home runs like like Willie used to. But he hit darn near 30 and uh, stole bags every year, you know, broke Corey Wills's record, broke Lou Brock's record, uh, season, career. He did it all. Um, and, uh, you know, he played for many teams. You know, he kept playing like Willie kept playing. And Willie heard a lot of abuse because, you know, they say, oh, you play too long. Well, if you look if you look at his stats, uh, his first year with the Mets after the trade, uh, he had the highest OPS, the combination of on-base plus slugging, on the team. And the next year, he went on the disabled list for the first time in his life. Uh, imagine that. He's 42, and he finally goes on his first DL. <laughs> I mean, they put guys on that list now just to give him rest, right. uh, not because you know they have some kind of injury. So anyway, it's uh, yeah, I, I like what you say. That's that's a nice comparison. And uh, the fact that they're both kind of Bay Area um, heroes here, uh, you know, one from the Giants, one from the A's and both, you know, Ricky's considered the greatest day ever and Giant A's is considered the Giants, uh, you know, best ever. So um, when uh, when when Ricky became a Met, uh, you know that number 24 recently was retired. Joan right. Payson was the owner back in New York when when uh, when the Giants moved west, and then she was a part owner, then became majority owner of the Mets when they became a team. And uh, uh, Joan Payson always loved Willie Mays and wanted to retire his number, but died shortly after Willie retired a couple mm. of years later in 75. So anyway... Uh, Steve Cohen, the current Mets owner, granted the wish of Joan Payson from many years ago. The Wilpon family, which owned the Mets, couldn't care less about <laughs> baseball history or Willie Mays. So they kind of struck out for many years. But luckily, unfortunately, Steve Cohen, the current owner, um, did a little research in history and said, man, I got to retire this number. And and luckily it happened with Willie Mays still alive and with us. And he really he really appreciated it. But Ricky asked for number 24 as a Met, but he had to go through Willie to do it, a phone call, and Willie gave his blessing, and that was the only way that somebody was going to wear 24. And then the Wilpons gave it to Robinson Cano of all oh, people, right. and, <laughs> and said, come on. Yeah. Uh, so luckily, nobody else ever will wear it as a giant and a Met. Right. Um, now, every chapter, you start with a little kind of tidbit of of of, um, of wisdom or a quote from from Willie Mays do you have a favorite from him or maybe one that's not in the book well um it's a good question because he he 
you know, the, the title is um, the 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. So, so every chapter begins with a lesson that sort of captures the theme of the upcoming chapter. So it, it's all about, you know, doing the right thing, um, treating people right, uh, you know, confidence being the key, uh, you know, pushing to get the most out of your ability and God-given talent. Uh, you know, I think I think my favorite is chapter 17, the race chapter, which he really gets deep in the, in, into um, his life on, on that subject. And, you know, he's basically saying, hey, make a difference and set an example to kids so they can set their own example. You know, it, it, kids meant so much to him. And in that chapter, you know, a, a quote I absolutely love, and I spoke with Bill Clinton. And by the way, you do a Willie Mays book, everybody calls you back. Bill Clinton called me back. George <laughs> W. Bush called me back. Because everyone has a Willie Mays story. And Bill Clinton said, Willie Mays made it absurd to be a racist. Mm. And, you know, I could talk all day about that. But basically, um, that chapter is pretty meaningful uh, in the book. And a lot of that chapter was kind of brought to life in the documentary. Um, Willie's inspiration to others, uh, you know, making a difference. I mean, set an example to the kids so they can set an example when they get older. And uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, and I think it's a really important book, like in 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 the climate of society, how it is right now, that 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 school kids especially should be reading, and and people of all ages should be reading and, and appreciating his his wisdom and his words. Um, now, finally, I got one more question for you. Um, the the Hall of Fame announcement is going to happen uh, Sunday night. How much would it mean for Willie to see Barry Bonds get elected into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, like you saw in the documentary, it would mean a lot. The day that the Giants retired Barry's number, 25, which was also his dad Bobby's number, 25, um, you know, they were going to have a little ceremony. Barry was going to talk. A couple others were going to talk. And Willie Mays was going to be there and watch. But instead, Willie kind of insisted, hey, give me the microphone. I got something to say. And when Willie Mays has something to say, you give him the microphone, right? You, you push back the game. He said, okay, we're not going to start this on time. So Willie got up about 10 minutes and just kind of campaigned for Barry to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, vote this guy in. He's very, very important to me was his final line. And, um, you know, whether that carries over to how voters feel, here's the greatest player ever, um, what the Hall of Fame is all about, and he wants Barry Bonds in. This committee of seven, uh, 16 voters on Sunday Seven of them are Hall of Fame players, and they need 12 uh, yays to, to get Bonds in. I, I don't think it will happen. I think you can go through that list and uh, count five people who are going to vote no, and that's all it'll take for Barry not to be in this time. You know, I have voted for him. It's no longer on the writer's ballot, though. Now it's in this era committee. And it's going to be every three years. I don't think this is going away. I think one day he will be in. I don't know if Willie be, be Willie will be around. I mean, McCovey also campaigned. You know, we lost Willie McCovey a few years ago. So it's it's pretty amazing. The people who know him best would want him to be in the Hall of Fame. The, the people who don't necessarily know him so much, you know, don't want him in the Hall of Fame, which might tell you a lot. But it's it's uh, it, it would I mean. Willie would be thrilled, Barry would be thrilled, uh, and it would be very emotional, very talking, you know, thinking about his dad, thinking about McCovey, thinking about Mays, thinking about all these people who did, you know, help him and stood in his corner and throughout the, the times that were not pleasant in his life. Um, for all the reasons we know about, so it's uh, it, it's it's a pretty cool story, but but I don't think it's going to uh, end Sunday with 
with uh, in a positive way for for bonds or maize. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. By the time people are listening to this interview, though, we will know because it's going to come out on Monday. Um, okay, John- if I'm wrong then. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll uh, just we'll just read the edit. An address you can complain. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, hey, I might be wrong, and if bonds <laughs> is a Hall of Famer when people hear this interview, I mean, good for him, and uh, it would be momentous. For sure. Um, John Shea, thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining me. I really enjoyed uh, reading the book, and, and I've, I've watched the documentary a couple times now and enjoyed okay. enjoyed it so so much. Um, now, people can, can read your work on uh, at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, they can follow you on Twitter at uh, John Shea Hay, which is an amazing <laughs> Twitter handle considering uh, <laughs> what you do. And also, I guess you wrote a, a book about um, a, a, one of the um, Oakland A's owners during the Moneyball time just recently this past year, too. Yeah, called Long Shot. And it's about an A's owner, Steve Shot, who... Um, was uh, got a whole lot of negative press when he was running the team. But you look back and it's pretty an intriguing story because he had the best winning percentage of any A's owner in history. And he oversaw the team during the Moneyball era. And a lot of insight from players, coaches, managers, uh, owners, commissioners, uh, a lot of background that hasn't been told from that era. Uh, and before and after that, a lot of Bay Area sports uh, history as well. So I, I, I enjoyed doing that one. I thought Maze was going to be my final book, but I said, okay, this is this is a good opportunity because no owner has ever spoken in first person in a book format since Branch Rickey and Bill Veck. So I said, okay, let's do this. Well, uh, those are a couple, definitely a couple books to add to the Christmas list. I'll definitely have to check that out. John, thanks again for joining me. Matt, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Okay, and I am back. That was a really great conversation. It was. It, it's really fun just to talk baseball. And, you know, uh, I could have probably uh, chatted with John all day long about, about Willie Mays and, and, and baseball. Um, there's, there's lots of news going around in the baseball world. Um, one thing that we mentioned in the interview, we talked about the Hall of Fame a little bit. Um, I'm recording this Sunday morning, so there's going to be some Hall of Fame announcements. Hopefully, hopefully someone will get into the Hall of Fame. Um, Sunday evening, so by the time you're listening to this podcast, podcast uh you will know if anybody has been inducted into the baseball hall of fame so we'll see um but yeah i didn't really want to talk too much about that because at this point it's all hypothetical um but uh yeah there's lots and lots of news going around uh in baseball right now because um after thanksgiving week it was a pretty quiet week but everything started to kind of heat up um and one of the big bits of news that came out early uh, i think earlier this week maybe uh maybe around or late, late the week of, of Thanksgiving. I'm not sure exactly when it was. But Don Mattingly was named uh, bench coach for the Jays. And that's my home run for the week. Um, just because he's going to offer a lot of experience to this still young Blue Jays roster. Um, he uh, is going to replace Casey Candale. Uh, Candale was just the interim uh, bench coach. And he's going to go back to manage Buffalo. But uh, Don Mattingly, he gives lots of great knowledge uh, from both a hitting and defensive uh, perspective. Uh, he was a great hitter. He, he could be one of the guys that gets nominated into the Hall of Fame tonight. You, we, 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 you never know. Um, and his defense at first base was, was, was great too. And it's just a shame that his career had to uh, end so early. Um, and uh, I think that also he's going to be a really great benefit for Vladdy, um, teaching just leadership and, and how to evolve as a leader. Because uh, this, is, this is Vladdy's team. So yeah, looking forward to seeing Don Mattingly uh, exert his influence on on this team. Um, hopefully, they'll they'll still keep the fun uh, on this team. I, I see a lot of people um, saying that uh, the Jays are having too much fun, but I don't I don't think in modern baseball that's 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 a thing. Uh, my no decision this week are the winter meeting rumors. Uh, we're seeing lots of news and stories come out uh, from the winter meetings. They've just started. Um, 
they're in San Diego this year. Um, and we're seeing lots of lots of stories come out. And and, and GMs, they're going to do their due diligence uh, and, 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 and talk to any team that's willing to talk uh, these days. The modern GM is just looking to improve their team no matter what the... the, the the benefit is going to be so so we're just going to hear lots of, of of rumors that aren't going to come to fruition so it's it's a bit frustrating uh because sometimes these rumors are, are pretty juicy but uh <clears throat> yeah that's my no decision for the week because um you know after the winter meetings we're gonna we're gonna know what's gonna happen and a lot of these rumors are just gonna be uh a little on the crazy side maybe uh, and my strikeout are just um looking at these some of these top free agency targets uh we saw recently uh jacob de sign uh with the texas rangers for 185 million dollars over five years and in, in my mind uh that's about at least a couple of years too many and i think that was probably the price for texas to, to sign jacob de uh but he um has only i think it was ken rosenthal that said this he's only uh pitched 26 starts over the past two years so so that's that's a, a lot of money for for 15 starts maybe uh, who knows because his his body and his arm has broken down pretty consistently and he's he's getting up there he's 34 years old i think he turns 35 this season and so he could be there's there's an option year for texas he could be 40 by the time this contract is done but i don't think he's going to last that long um on the other hand though keith law said that uh degrom degrom has been worth seven seven wins above replacement uh over those two seasons that he started so you know there's what what version of jacob degrom are you going to get um and i think the version that we can pretty much count on is the injured version um you just got to i guess hopefully put him into the to to the season early and, and hope you get your starts early and then and then uh, figure something out near the end when 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 his arm inevitably will break down and hopefully he'll have enough rest to maybe if the Rangers are are in con- uh, contention he'll be able to to make a difference. But there are other t- there are two other guys who are uh, big names on the market that also are aren't necessarily sure things. Uh, there's there's Aaron Judge who um, the news now is that he's going to get nine years and over three hundred million dollars, but how many years is he going to be effective as a hitter for? Like, it's kind of the same deal with the Grom, except he's just a little bit younger. Uh, he's, he's, he'll, I think he's be, he's 30 or 31 going into the season and his body is just so large. It's going to break down at some point. And I wouldn't be comfortable with anything more than four or five years if I were the team signing him. So it's going to be interesting to see where he goes, probably still the range, uh, sorry, the, the Yankees. Uh, but we'll have to see. And, and Justin Verlander, he might be the be- the surest bet out of all these guys. Uh, the, the almost 40 year old, uh, pitcher, uh, he, he just coming off a Cy Young award win. he's looking for, to, to cash in on a, on a on a big deal and and his he he had uh over a year off with tommy john surgery and he came back pretty strong but you know it's never a sure thing he's 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 like i said almost 40 so um i think he wants to to sign at least a two or three year deal um and with someone that old you don't know what's going to happen so there's just lots of uh lots of just uncertainty with these top free agency targets Okay, so we're going to go to the weekly poll now. Um, my question for the Blue Jays fans was, after trading Teoscar Hernandez to the Mariners, what will the Blue Jays accomplish next this offseason? So the options were trading a catcher, signing a starting pitcher, or acquiring a center fielder. Um, it was pretty much even among all options, um, but uh, the majority slightly uh, were leaning towards acquiring a center fielder. Um, it might be that you have to trade a catcher to do that, but um, I think that uh, I think that there's there's just some creativity out there for the Blue Jays uh, to 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 get a, a center fielder. So we'll see what happens. Um, some more Blue Jays news here. Uh, Pat Tabler announced that he will be leaving Sportsnet. So uh, good luck to him. Um, so it'll be. I, I think that he's probably just going to be retiring. Um, it'll be interesting to see who they choose to replace Pat Tavler in the booth. But my my nomination, my 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 wish would be for. Uh, 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 Joe Siddle to be the replacement because he's been pretty good in uh, in the studio. Um, and uh, more news. Um, they were, Jay's Twitter was posting uh, that Rogers Center demolition is complete and they should be ready by April 11th when they start. Um, and this is from Caitlin McGrath uh, on Twitter. She said, uh, demolition started on October 14th and uh, completed on November 18th. All 500 level seats have been removed. Structural demolition of the outfield seating area as well. Uh, new seats coming in in January. 
uh, and 2.2 million pounds of materials has been recycled from the stadium. Um, and judging by all the plastic in my basement that I'm looking at right now from, from Legos and everything, I think I have, it, it is all in my basement. <laughs> um, so that, that uh, is, is going to be fun to see how the, how the Rogers Centre uh, turns out uh, after all these renovations. Um, and what else do I have here? Oh, we have some, some end-of-year awards here. Um, the Toronto chapter of the baseball, the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers of America, I forget what the, that stands for, but the 22 awards, um, the most improved player uh, went to Ross Stripling, which makes sense. Uh, top pitcher, no no surprise here, Alec Manoa, and their MVP was Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I think uh, Steve and I had uh, uh, a discussion about who their the Jays MVP would be a, a month or two ago. Um, and, and you can't go wrong with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He is the heart and soul of this team, and he is the most important player for sure. Um, as well, the John Cerruti Award, given for goodwill, cooperation, and character, uh, goes to Buck Martinez and uh, Mark Budzinski. Uh, Mark Budzinski had a, had, a, had a tough year dealing with the loss of his daughter, and Buck Martinez, going through tre- cancer treatment, both of these guys had uh, lots of, of, of uh, hurdles to overcome, and they've... they've, 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 they've persevered and done well so so congratulations to, to everybody uh for winning those awards um and now just going to other baseball news lots of lots of news coming out of uh prior to the to the winter meetings but uh, the the big news is pretty interesting uh, uh pittsburgh pirates center fielder and switch hitter brian reynolds requested a trade on saturday so that's interesting from a blue jays perspective as well because he is exactly who they need. On the downside, though, is that uh, Pittsburgh is pretty deep in catching prospects. So I'm not sure that the Jays match up with Pittsburgh to make a trade. Um, Andrew Stoughton tweeted this uh, yesterday. I think I think they might need a third team to make something happen. So, like I said, I think some creativity needs to happen uh, in these uh, winter meetings if the Jays want to get a, a, a switch-hitting young player like Brian Reynolds uh, on their team. So we'll see what happens. Um, we saw a medium-ish trade happen a, a few days ago as well. Uh, the Mariners traded Jesse Winker and Abraham Toro to the Brewers for uh, second baseman Colton Wong. So that's interesting. Um, Colton Wong is a free agent after uh, this year, and 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 uh, the, the the Mariners GM was was making co- comments about like looking ahead to free agency in twenty twenty four or twenty twenty six. So it's 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 weird that he's looking ahead that far when he's got a pretty good team coming uh, into into uh, view in front of him right now. Um, the Rays uh, they signed their. Largest free agent sign, free agent signing in in, in in team history. They signed Zach Eflin, uh, formerly of the uh, Phillies, to a three-year, forty million dollar deal. So that's that's for, for the Rays, huge money, I guess. And I read uh, this morning that apparently the um, Red Sox had offered the same thing to. Uh, to, to Zach Eflin as well, but he opted to go for the Rays, and I guess because uh, technically it's actually more money uh, if he signs if he plays in Tampa because of the tax situation. A um, couple weeks ago, this is kind of older news, but uh, Yasiel Puig changed his plea to not guilty. Um, so there was some some I guess he was upset of how he was being perceived, I guess, or and and so he felt like he was treated unfairly in his in his uh, interview with I think it was the FBI. So so that has, is an interesting turn of events in that story. Um, Miguel Cabrera uh, announced that he's likely to retire after the uh, 2023 season. And I think that was pretty much an open secret. We all knew that was going to happen. Um, but it'll be fun to watch his, his, his kind of farewell tour. And he's been around for a long time. Uh, and yeah, he's kind of the, the, uh, been a staple since, what, 2003? So uh, yeah, he's had a great career, and he's, he's going to head to the Hall of Fame when, when he's eligible for sure. Um, another signing, Astros, they signed Jose Abreu. Um, so he'll play first base for him. For the, for the Astros, and uh, interestingly, the Astros and White Sox are going to open the 2023 season against each other. Uh, and the White Sox, they signed Mike Clevenger, so it's kind of a, a bit of a risky move because he hasn't been pitching well. He wasn't pitching well with San Diego, so that'll be interesting to see how he turns it, how he ends up in, in White Sox. But it's kind of a, a good upside deal. He could make their pitching staff actually turn out pretty well and, and could put them back into contention. There's there's not a lot that the White Sox need to do to uh, to i guess be in contention for the for the al central division because that's i think the weak one of the weakest divisions in baseball those two central divisions 
the Phillies extended Dave Dombrowski through 2027. And that's something that the Astros should have done with James Quick. <laughs> but that didn't happen. But but yeah, Dave Dombrowski is is his 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 track record is is, is pretty pretty solid. He's, he 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 gets teams to the playoffs and they they win. So yeah, he deserves that for sure. And finally, uh, speaking of the Phillies, Bryce Harper had Tommy John surgery, so he will be out about five months. Um, so uh, that happened, I guess, earlier in November. So uh, he'll start the season late. I can't do math in my head right now. There's too much things going on. Too many children in the house. Too much noise. I can't do it. But he'll be back in five months. You do the math. You figure it out. And that and I imagine he'll be DHing for the year <laughs> again for 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 the Phillies. Um, okay, so just looking ahead for the Jays, yeah, we've got the winter meetings this week. Lots of things are happening. Um, as far as actual uh, games go, um, it was announced earlier this week that Sunday home games will start at 1.37 p.m. Oh, and I wanted to, to point this out. Um, April 21st to 23rd is the first series against the Yankees for the Jays. And that's interesting because it seems there's, there's a little bit of a kind of a uh, a renewing of their rivalry that's coming up because it was uh, I guess a couple weeks ago Alec Manoa was was I guess on a podcast and he was saying that Garrett Cole is the biggest cheater in baseball uh, I guess because he used lots of sticky stuff I don't think he used it recently but when a couple years ago he used lots lots of sticky stuff on on the baseball so that'll be an interesting rivalry and I would love to see Alec Manoa versus Garrett Cole head to head uh in in a pitching battle that's that 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 needs to happen so so the re- renewal uh the rivalry will renew itself starting April 21st 23 that'll be a fun series to watch um and the Yankees have a lot of work to do if they want to be as competitive as they were last year so that is uh going to be fun to watch for sure um quick Titans check-in uh the Titans have signed Canadian Jacob Newton so that that came into my inbox earlier uh, in the week he is what does he do for he is what is he a utility player Canadian utility player he's from Oakville Ontario so that is uh, a player signing of note for the Titans. Um, okay, so we'll take a quick break, and then I will come back and talk about some personal stuff. Okay, and we're back. That was a quick break. <laughs> um, so personal stuff. Um, last weekend, Krista and I went, we went out. We got a babysitter. Uh, we went to Krista's uh, work par- Christmas party. Um, so my 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 home run strikeout and no decision all have to do with that. So my strikeout this week is uh, getting out of the house after the kids' bedtime. Um, it is it was not first of all it's not easy to get out of the house. Like it was a it was a dinner party. We didn't actually get to the party until 9 p.m. And by the time we got there, I was just exhausted. I think I woke up earlier that morning at like probably like 5 a.m. Leo had been throwing up all night long and we were almost not going to go to the party. We almost didn't get out of the house. Uh, it, but yeah, I was just exhausted at the end of the day and, and <laughs> I was I was not the life of the party, to, to say the least. Um, so that, and that leads to my no decision is getting out of the house after the kids' bedtime uh, because I, I just I didn't know what to do with myself being in public at a party without without my children <laughs> it, what it, it's it's it, being back in society I don't, I don't know what what how to how to how to talk to people how to, <laughs> how to how to how to be a normal person it was it was it was just a little bit kind of twilight zony to be to be out uh, and about uh after the sun has gone down um so yeah it was just a, it was just it's just weird uh, but my home run for the week definitely has to be uh, getting out of the house after kids' bedtime. So that <laughs> that it, it it in general it's it's a win all around because it's something that we haven't been able to do in I think since New Year's before Bo was born, so almost three years ago. Um, and big big thanks to uh, my older brother uh, and and sometimes guest of the show Glenn because he watched the kids um, and there were no no wake ups of note and no nobody was upset and and Glenn got to catch up on 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 Andor on <laughs> while the kids slept. Um, but yeah, it was just it was nice to get out of the house. It was nice to to have nine nine dollar beers at the at the bar. Um, and yeah, nice nice just to 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 
go out with Krista and have have a date night basically and and yeah it's 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 like I said it's weird but it's 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 nice so hopefully that will be able to happen a little more the the kids knock on wood are are sleeping better um and yeah despite their illnesses they 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 they've been doing okay um so yeah uh, I think that's about it for the show um I don't think I'll be getting Krista and I will be getting out without the kids after dark anytime soon but uh nice nice to 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 have that happen uh either way but yeah um that will be back in a couple weeks um hopefully by then uh the jays uh 2023 season will have a little bit more direction to it and we'll know we'll have more answers to some of the questions that we're asking so uh yeah we'll talk to you later see you in a couple weeks bye bye (laughs) 